I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Erica Hornthal. She's a licensed clinical counselor, board certified dance movement therapist and the CEO and founder of Chicago Dance Therapy. She's known as the therapist who moves you, and she's the author of a new book that we'll be talking about, Body Aware, Rediscover Your Mind-Body Connection, Stop Feeling Stuck, and Improve Your Mental Health with Simple Movement Practices. So Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So at the beginning of the book, you write about, instead of asking, how are you, like we usually do in our culture, we could ask, how are you moving? Could you talk about that? Absolutely. It's a pretty common greeting. How are you? And then usually the person says, fine, good, or a combination thereof. And I started asking this question to participants in some of my therapy groups in an attempt to decenter the mind making judgments or trying to qualify how we feel and giving people the opportunity to just connect to the sensations in their body. And so this tangible, really simple directive of how are you moving became super helpful and allowed me and again, the clients that I've worked with to reframe and find a way to access movement in a very simple, compassionate way. How did you discover the healing power of movement and dance? And what is it about movement and dance that turned you on? With regard to my professional career, I was introduced to the field of dance movement therapy in my freshman year of college. And I'd never known about such a field. And so I think, you know, through getting my master's as a dance movement therapist and uncovering through actual application, both as a client myself and as a therapist, it allowed me to really see what potential is possible for change and for mindset when we engage in movement. But even before that, as I allude to in the book, 
dance really became what allowed me to move through life when things were anything but easy. And I don't know if I would have dealt with things the way I did. I won't say well, because I don't know if I did it well, but I don't know if I would have dealt with them the way I did if I hadn't kept my body moving. Because I know when I am facing challenges, anxieties, fears, worries, which I did a lot as a kid, it really constricts my body. And dance, in many ways, really kept me open, kept me spacious, kept me flowing and challenging the way my body wanted to move and kind of the patterns it fell into inherently. And being able to tap into that with my clients has been really invaluable because they're so stuck in a mindset or in a behavior or a pattern that really the initial way to start to change that and even just question it and inquire and wonder about it is by changing the way the body is showing up in the present. And so body awareness didn't quite seem enough. And that's kind of where this phrase body aware came from, because it was really this idea of understanding and again, being curious about how what we feel in the body contributes to our mood, our thoughts, our behaviors. So it's not just about how I feel, what I look like, where I am in space, how much space I take up, if I'm impending or imposing on other people's space. But it's really this inter interceptive process and then finding meaning really through the movement of how this plays a role in my life, how certain movement prevents me from showing up in the world, and how we can actually improve the world itself when we change the way we move through it. As you were talking about that, I was flashing back to my childhood. I had a pretty disruptive and emotionally and psychologically traumatizing experience as a child, as many do. Mm -hmm. And I remember I used to rock in bed and it would take me from whatever state of mind or emotional state that I was in and completely smooth everything out and put me into a state of equanimity. Mm -hmm or you could even call it blissful. Hmm. So that's like a simple example of movement creating a kind of healing effect in the body. Absolutely. We are introduced very, very early, you know, because I think some of it even starts before we exit the womb, but we are introduced to these rhythms. And then when we're birthed, you know, we often hear them as reflexes. But there are rhythms that we become accustomed to that either allow us to regulate or attempt to regulate our experience. Often it's the caregiver that's providing that for us, a tap or a pat or a gentle rock. Sometimes they're maladaptive. They're not always as soothing as perhaps they should be or are meant to be. But these get internalized. And that's actually one of the interventions I use quite a bit with myself, but also with clients is recognizing what rhythms feel regulating for us, what rhythms feel soothing. Because sometimes we not only forget to engage in them, but oftentimes we're doing the opposite of what that rhythm would be. 
So, you know, I myself identify so much with rocking to the point where sometimes I'm doing it and I don't even realize until someone points it out to me because it is just kind of this inherent like self-soothing mechanism that even if I'm feeling just a little agitated or uneasy, it's something that does kind of bring me back down to baseline. Yeah, and I also remember later in life because it continued into my early adult years Mm -hmm. and I would often do it in my sleep. And when someone mentioned it, I would feel a deep sense of shame. Like mm. there was something fundamentally wrong with me to be rocking as an adult. Well, look how it's it's even portrayed sometimes that way in movies, in Hollywood. You know, you'll see a residential facility or you'll see, you know, an inpatient psych ward. And there's almost always a character in the corner of the room rocking. And... We're made to think that when we rock or move our body in that way, that we're, quote, crazy, but quite the opposite. That's actually the body's survival mechanism. The body's trying to dispel this emotional energy, right? And it is the body's attempt to regulate. It is the body's attempt to to do something with that, whatever it may be, anxiety, fear, anger, shame, guilt, etc. So I can totally resonate with that as well. And I've been known to say that our mind tends to gaslight our bodies. And so the body wants something or knows that it needs something. And we often talk ourselves out of it. Or again, that that shame piece may come up, you know, or, oh, gosh, you can't be seen doing this. Or what's wrong with you? Those are all thoughts. That's That's where judgment comes in. But the body doesn't judge. And the body just, it wants, it needs. And movement is nourishment. And oftentimes security, you know, or finding stability in a world that's less than. So it's pretty well known that over 90% of communication is nonverbal. Could you put that into context with talk therapy and the problems associated with our cultural mental dominance over the body and limited perspective of the psyche, or at least, you know, our, our mainstream perspective of the psyche? Sure. I really appreciate how you just put that. (laughs) And I go as far as saying that I think talk therapy is outdated. And it's not that I don't agree with it because I'm trained as a talk therapist as well. I'm a clinical counselor. You know, I'm a psychotherapist. I get it. I understand the value of it. And because I'm a dance movement therapist, I understand that the language piece only takes us so far because as you mentioned, most of our communication is nonverbal. And so I always find it interesting, too, that at some point, usually people equate it to Descartes. You know, we have this dualism. But before that, psyche, psychology was really an integration of mind, body and soul. And yet nowadays, being someone that practices mind, body, soul or mind, body connection in therapy, I get looked at like I'm crazy. (laughs) You know, like where did you come up with that, you know? And really that's the root of psychology. I mean, that's where it was millennia ago, centuries ago, perhaps. So it's not new. It's just that we're getting back to the roots of where psychology started. And that when we only focus on the mind, the brain, the head space, it really limits so much of our understanding of where emotions come from and where they're housed. It also limits how much we can intervene and help ourselves 
ease the symptoms and the mental health struggles that we're going through. So it's not meant to throw anyone under the bus, you know, or say that this is bad or this is wrong. I just don't think it's comprehensive enough. And with all that we know about how trauma is stored, how emotions are embodied, we need to be educating all mental health practitioners on ways to incorporate body into therapy. Yeah. So talk about the mind-body connection and in relationship to mind-body communication and how they're distinct and also about learning to become bilingual in mind and body language. This is one of my favorite, well, I say that about a lot of pieces of the book, but this was really one of my favorite parts to write about because I think I was kind of coming to understand it as I was writing it kind of like that dual process and realizing on my own, but also having conversations with clients, coming to this agreement that mind and body feel like two different, not only entities, but almost sometimes like two different cultures, if you will. And often cultures have different languages. And so if mind speaks one language and body speaks another, Do they understand each other? How do they communicate? Can they translate? And that I'm more fluent in one than the other. That's certainly my experience of it. And so, you know, I write about feeling still to this day very drawn to my headspace. And that oftentimes, even though my body is receiving the information, my first awareness of it often is in my headspace. And I really have to intentionally remember myself to be body aware and to go into my body and notice where I'm feeling the sensations that are manifesting as these thoughts, right? And I think just one understanding that we all have a mind-body connection, that how we move influences how we think and vice versa, but also understanding that it's not just, oh, I read about it and now I get it, you know, or I practice some somatic interventions and now I understand how to access it, that it really is a practice and that at any given moment, we might be more in tune to one than the other, but we always have the conscious choice to translate the information between the two. And we can do that through movement. We can do it through other expressive means. We can do it through verbal communication, but it really takes this this partnership, this integration and understanding of the two. So it really is amazing when you not only learn a second language, but you feel like you can translate back and forth between the two of them. And they're not only miscommunicating anymore, but they're congruent often. They actually have a dialogue now and let each other take turns, (laughs) which feels a lot more peaceful in my system than before when they were just at odds and constantly arguing. Could you give some examples of translating mind language into body language and vice versa? Yeah. One example I like to use is, or maybe this is more of an intervention, but just the simple directive of moving from the mind versus moving from the body. So anyone listening now can even try this, where if I think to myself, I'm going to move my hand, and then I do. And intentionally, I only move my hand based off of what my thoughts tell me to do. So I'm going to tap my fingers to my thumb. I'm doing that as I speak. I'm going to make a fist, right? And trying that, moving from intention, moving from a mental directive versus 
just moving my body however it wants. And so again, you can't see me, but right now I'm circling my arms, I'm rolling my shoulders, but I'm not telling my body to do that. It just comes naturally and kind of sitting between the two, which one feels more natural, which one's unfamiliar or more familiar, which one's more comfortable than the other. For a long time, I noticed that I didn't always feel comfortable or like I could just organically and authentically move my body. I felt like I needed direction. And that I think a lot of times came from the world of dance where I was always told how to move. So learning to be authentic in my body and move for my body, from my body and not from a directive in my mind was very foreign and still is at times. A lot of people consider it improvisation, very uncomfortable. We get scared and we're afraid of judgment or perfectionism rears its ugly head. So that's a very simple intervention I think of, of what is it like to move from the mind? What is it like to move from the body? And can I play between the two? Can I oscillate between them? You know, do I enjoy one versus the other? And increasing that practice. I think particularly for someone who doesn't have any connection with their body's language, they might need somebody to actually introduce them to the language of their body. Right, right, like a translator of sorts. <laughs> right, or even somebody to allow them to discover that there is something there that previously the person was completely unaware of. Right, right. It makes me think the first time you see a language written, oftentimes it just looks like scribble. You don't even know that it's a language and that, that feels very pertinent. You know, that I don't even know what I'm looking for because what's present might not even look like any language I've ever known or met before. So to have someone introduce you to that, right? Welcome to the language of the body. Then you start looking for words. You start looking for the vocabulary. You start recognizing <laughs> syntax, grammar, right? Things that you wouldn't necessarily even know to look for because it's just a completely foreign entity. Right. And translated to the body side of it, realizing that you can actually just allow your body to move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting things that's come out of conversations like this is that it really is that simple. <laughs> you know, I've had this question many times now, you know, what's the one thing, what's the entry point? And I joke, but I'm serious that it really is just in the title. It's just about becoming aware of your body. There's no magic pill. There's no, you know, one, two, three step. I mean, the book obviously goes into lots of different explorations and interventions that you can try and think of, but it really is just that simple of like slowing down enough so that you can start to pay attention to what's already present. And in a world that's full of distraction, that is a, that is a huge challenge in itself. And there really is a vocabulary to body movement and body language. I mean, I remember many years ago when I was living in a community out in San Diego and every Friday night we would do this dance jam thing. We rented a dance studio and we did just whatever kind of movement and dance we felt like doing. And somebody joined us who was into contact improv. Mm. And so Many of us started playing around with that. And then shortly after that, someone moved into our community who was an old contact improv dancer, and they started giving classes. And I discovered this quite literally amazing phenomenon of 
each class I took, I would literally learn new vocabulary of how my body could move, not just in itself, but in relation to another body that was also moving improvisationally. And huh. I kept discovering how I had so little vocabulary. And vocabulary means it translates into the possibilities that are open to us. I mean, we have infinite possibilities that are open to us, but if we're not even aware of those possibilities, we may never discover them. And Absolutely. Each, and in each class, we learned new vocabulary, which opened up whole new doorways of movement possibility, which was a literal revelation. Yeah, yeah. And something I'm very passionate about, I talk about in the book as well, is that when we build this vocabulary, you know, I, I've been using the phrase robust vocabulary. When we add to our embodied dictionary of the ways that we're already moving and we build on top of that, we're actually building resilience. We are able to manage things that come up, you know, come at us as unexpected as they may be with a much different sense of agency, different sense of, you know, different capacity. You know, it doesn't mean that things aren't going to hit us. You know, we're still meant to have the emotions that come with that grief and loss and fear and anger and you name it. But how we maneuver and manage through that is so different. You know, oftentimes we'll hear of this term window of tolerance, you know, how much stress we can basically take on without becoming either hypo aroused or hyper aroused. And when we engage in more ways of moving and we build a more robust system, our window of tolerance increases. And that's not a new concept, but I think it's new to mainstream. Most often we think, you know, that there's a mindset that needs to go along with it. You know, there's a conscious thought pattern that has to happen. And that's really difficult. So either we supplement it or we we support it with this idea of just engaging in new and unfamiliar ways of moving. And like you said, potential is greatly expanded. You know, you can find ways to initiate, to motivate you know, to just take action, whatever that looks like. It's really eye-opening for a lot of people, myself included. So you brought up the term resilience. And when I hear that in relation to this realm of mental health, I think in terms of emotional resilience or emotional self-regulation. And we haven't really brought emotions into all of this. Could you bring emotional resilience and emotional expression or emotional experience into this? Yeah. In my mind and body, sometimes it just comes along for the ride <laughs> because our emotions are embodied, you know? So to speak of movement and to not have it correlate to emotion, you know, in my understanding is like, wait, haven't we been talking? Oh, right, right. Okay. Let me back it up to lay that foundation and to just explain a little bit more to people listening one, it's understanding that our emotions are in our bodies. You know, it's not just when I experience it and understanding like, oh, I'm angry. Oh, my stomach hurts, you know, or oh, I'm anxious. Oh, my chest is, you know, fluttery. But that there are receptors, like there are molecules, thanks to Dr. Candace Pert, who did this research, like there are molecules in our body, not just our brain, that are responsible for the emotions that then 
become awareness in, you know, the sense of cognition. So it's taking in the senses, right? It's taking in our experiences and our environment. And then again, maybe like translating them into this verbal language we have of emotions, you know, identifying this is fear, this is anger, this is, you know, anxiety. But I think one of the ways that I introduce it and that I've experienced it again, because a lot of this I've experienced on my own in my own work, it's twofold. So one, you can either take an emotion that you currently feel and notice where you connect to it in your body. You know, so I like to say to people, if you couldn't use the words, you couldn't tell someone how you feel, what would you show them? So as an example, maybe it's I'm feeling joyful and I notice it as a lifting in my cheeks. You know, my eyes open, my cheeks lift. That's joyful to me. But on the other hand, I can start in the body and just notice what's happening. And maybe again, I'm noticing eyes open, cheeks lifted, and I'm bringing awareness to the fact that I might be smiling or I'm feeling lighter, lifted. And then I can make meaning. What does this feel like? Have I experienced this before? What is this emotion? And then perhaps I get to the conclusion, this is joy. This is happiness. This is excitement, you know, or or whatever that feels like for you. Hopefully that lays some groundwork for like where the emotions come in to movement and then how to start exploring the connection between movement and emotion. That just reminded me of my last dog, like, dogs, you know, they wag their tail. Mm -hmm. And that's a way of expressing both excitement, but also of happiness. Mm -hmm. And, and I experienced that directly, because, you know, I think we can learn a lot from life around us. So, you know, I observed the way his whole body would wiggle when he would wag his tail. And so I started doing that. And when I did (laughs) that, it literally brought pleasure to my body. It brought joy and pleasure to my body. And it's a beautiful example of how body language translates into where emotions are part of body language and body experience. And across species, right? It's like, you know, really where a lot of this, at least Western understanding, you know, of body and held emotions comes from is Peter Levine's work was really illustrating, you know, how animals discharge and dispel trauma, you know, most often seen in shaking. And that for some reason, as humans, you know, we take this executive functioning and we think our way out of problems or we think we can think our way out of problems when really we just need to go back into the body and allow for some of these primitive rhythms and movements to come out. You know, so this idea that it it crosses species because it's movement, it's movement at the heart of it. That is our primitive, what some people would call our reptilian brain. And it makes me think even further that, you know, bodies mirror other bodies. It doesn't have to be a human body necessarily, but like the bodies that we're around, we're mirroring and that's good and bad. You know, if we want to calm down and regulate ourselves and we happen to be around other people that are modeling that for us, that's nourishing for our nervous system. On the other hand, a lot of us need that, but we're in environments that continually perpetuate dysregulation in the mind and the body. So we don't always take into account, we don't understand that just being present to other bodies and other nonverbal communication It's not just an energy piece. It's an actual mirroring. Like our brains, our mirror neurons are noticing and picking up these postures and gestures. And we're taking them on. We're taking a lot of the 
context, if that's the right word, just to say that, you know, words alone are not the only thing that we pick up. We're picking up a lot of nonverbal cues and that's contributing to our regulation or our dysregulation. Yeah, and I was thinking how our nervous systems and bodies and emotional beings become overwhelmed by the news and what we see in the media. Yes, and how integrated it is into our lifestyle and our environment and our society. It's a blessing and a curse. I've been joking that I could write an entire book, like it'll be body aware, you know, 2.0, all about body and technology, because there's so much information as to how we are changing the way we move when we engage in technology, which then contributes to poor mental health. Mm -hmm. And if we could just really become aware of our bodies enough to see how our bodies respond to stimulus from outside, particularly the bombardment of media images and news and things like that, which I I think most people just take in without question. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to, you know, if you're on social media and you're scrolling and you're exposing yourself to things and then whether you're aware of it or not, your mood is shifting. You know, moments later you realize you're exhibiting jealousy or, you know, anger. And maybe before you started the doom scrolling, you were actually feeling pretty good, you know, or going through your day quite lightheartedly. But something we don't even realize is just how we engage physically in our devices that oftentimes, you know, physically we see that it's impacting our posture. You know, people can get kind of like a pump around the neck area because we're constantly looking down and we're hunching over, but that psychologically continuing to engage in that posture has actually shown, research has shown that it contributes to poor mood and perhaps even like depressive symptoms in people. So even just the awareness of how am I engaging physically in this technology, I find myself, you know, very often making sure that my phone is at eye height, you know, or or, uh, making eye contact with it so that I'm not engaging in this stooped posture or just turning it off altogether so that I'm not overstimulating my mind and my body. But yeah, there's so many implications. And, you know, as you put, there's so much unawareness when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what you refer to as developmental body patterns and how they affect us and the way we relate to and make sense of the world around us. Yeah, so most of us are familiar with developmental milestones, you know, especially if we have children. I mean, all of us were children. We don't necessarily remember what it was like to learn to walk or to learn to sit up on our own. But it's not to be confused with milestones. Those are quite different. Developmental movement patterns are these body connectivities that were, I believe, first talked about by Ermgard Barteniev. And they're connectivities in the body that then allow us to reach these milestones. And then ultimately, as we age, they contribute to our psychological patterns, how we maintain boundaries or set boundaries, you know, how we communicate, how we show up in the body, how we literally transition from one thing to the next, and that we can live full lives without fully realizing these developmental movement patterns, but that if we're finding ourselves stuck in a relationship, in a job, in the world, oftentimes going back and revisiting these early developmental movement patterns 
are what can allow us to repattern the brain, to rewire the thoughts and the mindset that's contributing to, again, that sense of feeling stuck or overwhelmed. So in examples of connectivities are things like breath. Breath is the first connectivity. It's the foundation for all the rest. Something like head tail. So how the spine, the engagement of the spine between the head and tail. So for any yogis listening, oftentimes we think of like the cat-cow stretch. You know, it's how a baby kind of first learns to engage in its environment when it's looking around. It Tummy time, or if the child lifts its head. So, you know, we hear tummy time is so important, but that's really why. Because it's building these developmental patterns, these movement patterns that are going to allow us to not only make sense of the world later on, but to know who we are as we move through it. And also the possibilities of how we can move in relation to the world and the stimulus that we receive from the world. Getting back to vocabulary. Yes, how much to engage in it, when to disconnect, you know, when to come into myself, when to give of myself, you know, so it's this push-pull, you know, it's, it's initiation without being pushed, it's, you know, taking a step back without being pulled type of thing, you know, am I initiating it? Do I have agency over my movement or am I constantly feeling like others are moving me? I've experienced both, you know, and we can't always be in control of all of that all the time, but when we're aware of it, we can certainly take time later on to reclaim what we need. So I think of like being in a hustle bustle environment, very chaotic, you know, it's really dysregulating for my nervous system. And if I'm in that environment for whatever reason, maybe I'm, you know, commuting downtown or I'm in a crowd of people that it's really important for me later on to reclaim my time, reclaim my space, own those qualities of my movement, because otherwise it has a way of coming out later. And I feel very unsettled and very anxious until I'm able to reset that baseline, you know, kind of, again, regulate that nervous system. Yeah. You say first comes movement, then comes mind, and therefore just changing our thinking alone isn't enough to change those developmental movement patterns. Yeah, I remember writing that. I think it was my editor that was like, let's hypothesize this. It may very well be true. And I think a lot of people would agree with that and have even perhaps proven that hypothesis. But, you know, it seemed to me that movement comes first because when we are young, really, really young, the mind isn't developed. And so how the mind develops is through moving in relation, figuring out who we are, figuring out the world around us. You know, it comes in through sensations. It's reaching for something, putting it in my mouth. So it just seemed to make sense to me that once the mind develops and we have these habits and patterns and thoughts, if we don't like them or something isn't sitting well with us, isn't the best way to change that going back to the drawing board and changing the movement that goes along with it? Because that's still present. Just because we've reached this higher level of functioning, you know, our prefrontal cortex and our executive functioning is intact, it doesn't mean that we can't go back and get back to that primitive reptilian brain that speaks to the movement that then supported the cognition. So I think as I was writing it, I realized that that could be very out there for a lot of people. 
But hopefully as I explained it and went more into it in detail and brought readers quite literally through it in movement, it becomes more accessible and more understandable that, oh, this is how I came into the world. And just because this isn't necessarily how I operate now doesn't mean that it's not still in my body and that that could be the missing link. That could be the piece that I really need in order to help make these permanent changes, make these transformations. But aren't there studies that have been duplicated over and over again of how the mind is literally at the very least a fraction of a second behind the body in terms of knowing what's about to happen. So in that sense, movement always precedes the mind and executive awareness. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I think, and you started out at the beginning, you know, talking about the Western perception. I think we're so far from connection to movement that we just automatically assume that what I think is the entry, is the gateway, you know, and that then the body follows. But yes, there are definitely studies, there's research, there's a lot of work being done around the fact that your body is experiencing those things well before your mind is aware of it. And then when the mind is aware of it, it's already placed all these contexts and judgments and assumptions on it that's really clouded our ability to reconnect to where it started in the first place, which was through sensations in the body. So let's talk about trauma and how that affects the way we move and also how we get stuck in patterns of fight, flight, or freeze. And you write about how trauma gets imprinted in the body as overwhelming emotions like fear and things like that. And that it's really through the body that we can move toward and access a sense of safety with these kind of emotions. Yeah, thanks to uh, a fellow dance therapist, Amber Elizabeth Gray, who you know has done work, actually created dance movement therapy with regard to polyvagal theory. That's where a lot of what I introduced readers to came from, this idea of the imprinting, you know, finding safety through the body, like her approach is just so nourishing to me. And so this was just my interpretation, if you will. And trauma in the body is not new. You know, I mean, there's obviously resources and, you know, books about it. And so I was very intentional in my book about saying, like, this isn't another book about trauma. But the one piece that I felt was missing from that discussion around trauma and the body was that when we experience a trauma, we revert back to those early developmental movement patterns. So the best way I can describe it is sometimes you are engaging with an adult and all of a sudden there's a conflict or something's coming up and you feel like you're suddenly speaking to someone much younger or triggered. And it's as if they've been transported to like a previous time. And it's quite literally the trauma because it's trapped in the body. And while the body doesn't necessarily keep time, it doesn't know, oh, wait, this was 10 years ago. You're safe now. It's drawn back to that time because of what you're experiencing in your body, the sensations that are coming up. Again, unless you've recognized that or worked through that. So I wanted people to get an understanding, you know, that not only is trauma trapped in the body, not only is the body the way to recognize and maybe release a lot of the stored trauma, but that younger developmental patterns and younger ways of operating may come up 
because of when the trauma occurred, how it's stored in the body and how it gets accessed. You know, I've had a lot of clients say like, you know, my mom and I got into this argument and I swear it's like I'm the parent sometimes, you know, and it's an interesting thing to look at because sometimes in that instance, the parent is triggered and their trauma is triggering a very young developmental pattern, a very young response. And so in that moment, the adult does become the child and their movement patterns revert back to things that may look more infantile. They may look more adolescent. They get combative or there might be some resistance. And it's interesting once you know to look for that or once you have that understanding, I've had clients kind of go, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. And it's not to demean, you know, it's not to excuse, it's to actually bring in more compassion, you know, to understand, oh, this is me surviving, or this is, you know, mom or friend or whoever surviving. And this is what the body and brain know to do, unless they're given more resources, unless, again, we're looking at how those developmental patterns come in and then rewiring them or reworking them. And what we can do, you know, to work through that is to create a sense of stability and presence and grounding in the body. And that can be through, you know, the senses, it can be through something Dr. Gray talks about as ritual, you know, an anchor to the present moment. It feels elusive until you start really understanding how simple it is, you know, and that just engaging the body in new ways of moving when you're already stuck in these very, very ingrained patterns and habits is really all that's needed to start shifting the mind. Mm -hmm. So how do you work with that with your clients? Yeah. So oftentimes for me, it's not always even about going into the maladaptive pattern. It's really about kind of starting from that ground up. So even just starting from something as breath, and it's not breath work, so to speak. It's just noticing, can you pay attention to your breath right now? Where is your breath? Are you holding your breath? That's often very accessible. Just noticing either, yes, it's present or no, it's not. And so if it is present, where? And then I'll, I'll have a client, you know, can you show me using your hand? You know, can you place a hand over where you tend to feel your breath? If they can't, bringing in a prop sometimes, a balloon or a ball that you can kind of like press into or expand. So it becomes very visual and it's not always necessarily going into the body right away because that can feel very scary, but having an expressive externalized view of it. And then inviting a kind of a migration, if you will, you know, so if I identify a sensation somewhere in my body, can I use that kind of like allow it to wash over, you know, so if I feel it in my right shoulder, you know, can I use my hand touching my right shoulder, and then, you know, drawing it down the arm. So I'm using something more tactile. Again, it's not really harnessing the interoceptive, it's not really having to go really, really internalized and deep because that can be a little too much or too overwhelming. So we're just focusing on the external and then we're bringing in these rhythms, right? So either I'm drawing down the arm and maybe it becomes a massaging motion. For some people, it's a tapping or a patting. And we can allow that to, again, this is idea of like wash over us, like water, or like a wave. And we can go down the other arm. We can, our, our chest, our torso, we can maybe go all, go all the way down our legs to our feet, and so now we're just engaging in movement. Now we're just engaging in the body. 
And then I'll draw attention again to breath. And I might just say, take a moment and notice your breath now. Can you feel it? Yes. Where do you feel it? And it's just starting this dialogue, you know, so it is very much a marriage, at least how I operate as a marriage between moving and talking, moving and talking when possible. And it's taking the, I think what sometimes feels like the pressure and the responsibility of, oh my God, my body's carrying all of this and I must unleash and I must uncover it all. And it's just finding a very gentle way to just introduce how you can start to befriend your body, how you can start to move your body, how you can start to expand the ways that you move your body so that when we become triggered, you know, when something is really re-traumatizing or brings us back to that period in time where we were feeling unsafe, we learn to come back to the present moment and rely on what is, what is here, what I'm present to, you know, and the putting our feet on the floor, grounding in the moment. I'm a big fan of using the wall. You know, I recognize there are times where we might not have walls around us, but there's usually somewhere that you can lean against, you can push against. And so, you know, leaning into a wall that's stable, pushing your hands into it, putting your back against it. These are all ways that we can conjure up a sense of stability in the body when our mind is feeling anything but. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying that it's sufficient to just find a simple practice that brings us back into the present moment, even while the trauma is affecting us in the moment, even while we're finding ourselves back in some old traumatic pattern. Yeah, because you know, really at the heart of it, we can't wait until the trauma doesn't affect us to live our lives. We have to learn to live our lives through the trauma, right? Or through the the reliving of the trauma. And so for me and for my clients, this has been one way to do it. You know, is it the way? No, it's different for everyone. But this has been one of the consistent ways to do that, you know, and to continue to bring a sense of security, safety. I mean, those words are obviously kind of in the eye of the beholder, but a physical sense of here, a physical sense of presence, because that is ultimately what's going to take our mind out of, you know, 20 years ago versus what's happening right now in the moment. And then we can bring in the somatic practices, you know, like shaking or rocking or swaying, but we really have to meet our body where it is before we're aware of, oh my God, I'm in it. What do I do? I can't think straight. Okay. I'm leaning against something. I'm holding myself up. I'm pushing into something. I can feel my body in space again. Now I might be able to think, what is it that helps me relax? What is it that helps me regulate? Okay. I'm going to shake. Okay. I'm going to rock. I'm going to pat. I'm going to tap. I'm going to hold myself and kind of gently give myself a hug and allow myself to re-inhabit my body and to, you know, move my mind from the trigger the fear, the anxiety. You know, we forget. We don't realize how simple it can be. And then they can access it when they need it, you know, where they need it. Mm -hmm. So is that what you mean when you write about consciously moving through dimensional planes? The dimensional plane piece was just introducing the logistics of movement, you know, in a sense, making it more mechanical, you know, letting people know that if the idea of just moving is really overwhelming, that we want to break it down and look at the ways we move and that everyone, every creature really moves 
in these dimensions, in these three dimensions. We've got this vertical, or we can think of it as like standing in a doorway. We've got this horizontal, which people also call the table plane, which is like if you were standing in the middle of a dining room table, it's all the surface area around you. And then something called sagittal, which is how we move forward and back or how we advance or retreat in our environment. And quite often, this is how I introduce movement to my clients. This is kind of like a little mini assessment that I do all the time. But this is like sometimes the first introduction to movement with regard to therapy and mental health and just noticing what affinities I have to these different planes, which ones feel most familiar to me, which ones feel the most foreign. And without me placing any judgment or assumptions, asking them, like, what comes up for you when you move in this way? Have you experienced this before? Which one feels restorative? You know, if you're feeling really overwhelmed and you found a way or a dimension in which you moved that felt very nourishing to your system, let's do that. Let's engage in that more often. So when you're alone or when you're, again, in the throes of something very stressful, you can remind yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know what movement is very connecting for me and I need to tap into that right now. So I found it actually a lot this week because I was engaging a lot on social media. My propensity, especially when I'm doing things on my phone, like Instagram, I lean into it. And when I lean into something, it really throws my initiation and my motivation off whack. Like everything is about going and doing. And I can never do it fast enough. I can never get there too soon. Always 10 steps ahead. And if I just stay in that posture before I know it, I'm thinking about two weeks from now or two years from now. When all I want to do is actually concentrate on the present moment. So for me, it's recognizing, oh my gosh, I'm in the sagittal. I need to come back to vertical. And that literally just means sitting back in my chair, finding my spine, and just reorienting to the space around me, just claiming my upright position, if you will. And that's been very eye-opening for, again, a lot of clients that had no understanding of kind of movement analysis or movement assessment or this idea of that we move in dimensions, that we move in these planes, and that we can combine them. You know, we can move in multiple dimensions. We can spiral, we can twist, we can turn, but it's a new way for a lot of people of looking at how I can start to modulate and how I can start to use my body to regulate that system. I love that. New vocabulary again. New vocabulary, yeah. But who uses the word sagittal? I mean, I do. But just this idea of advancing and retreating. You know, we know what it means to accelerate. We know what it means to decelerate. We know what it means to, you know, move forward and back. But we don't always look at the metaphor, you know, the meaning behind how I move through life based off of how I move in these dimensions. And again, it's a game changer for a lot of people because it puts the locus of control back within their body, within their mind, and they can do something with it. Right. How an introvert or extrovert can orient themselves in terms of their own way of relating to the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's another fascinating thing in the book where you write about how the atmosphere in which dance and movement therapy occurs is a place between fantasy and reality. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to talk more about this place between fantasy and reality and how we can work within it. Yeah. A lot of this came from my work with older adults that were living with some type of cognitive deficit or difference or disability, quite often dementia, most living with moderate to pretty severe Alzheimer's disease. And I remember actually working with a client within the last 10 years, 
and, you know, working with medical professionals who not all operate this way, but this particular medical professional was still very much in the orientation that this patient needed to be brought into reality, you know, into our reality, into this present day, this time. And I saw how dysregulating that was for them. You know, they weren't harming themselves. They weren't harming anyone else around them. And that if being in their reality, you know, whatever time frame that was, whatever era that was, if that's what created a quality of life for them, then I wanted to meet them in that. And sometimes that meant, you know, being back at a drive-in, watching a movie with, I don't know, Humphrey Bogart on the screen, or, you know, being a child on the playground, playing hide and seek, you know, maybe it was raising my child who I just had, even though really the child was well into their 50s. You know, this is the fantasy versus reality that I talk about because it's not fantasy to them. It's their reality versus my reality. And through things like movement and play and creativity and improvisation and imagination, we meet at the center between one's fantasy and one's reality. And I don't think a lot of that would have been possible with these clients, with a lot of my clients, had movement not been introduced, because it would have just continued to be pushing my own agenda or pushing someone else's agenda or, you know, trying to force them into a situation that really was not attainable for many people. And the irony is, oftentimes when I met them in what felt like fantasy to me, but was their reality it brought them into the present reality. It brought them into the present moment, into what was happening in the here and now. And there would be clarity. There would be moments of clarity. And so maybe, you know, the baby that I thought was a baby who's really 50, all of a sudden I recognize, you know, oh, that's that's my grown son. Or the name comes to mind and I can actually recall, you know, something about a family member who typically I might have trouble remembering. Hopefully that creates some context for like where that came from and how I feel or what I think of when I hear that idea of fantasy versus reality. But it really is this idea of like being playful and creative and that that's not just for children. You know, it's something we all need to do and it's a muscle. And if we don't exercise it, we will lose it. And, you know, George Bernard Shaw's famous quote of, you know, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. And I just think that it gets truer and truer every day. Every time I do this work, I'm just like, it's not just frivolous to play. It's actually to our benefit. It helps our system. It helps our minds. It helps our bodies. And it actually helps us be healthier, more compassionate people. And it feels like the world today could use a lot more of that. And this isn't just specific to dementia, but just because that's the experience that I bring in You know, there were so many times where that was the only way that I could connect to a lot of these patients. And that was the reason that so many of the staff, the doctors, the nurses, the physical therapists, like so many of them couldn't connect with these individuals because they weren't able to or recognizing that they needed to join in the quote fantasy, you know, or their reality. I'll never forget this. I have a wonderful example. I was at a residential facility in the memory care unit. And this woman, new to me, she was new to the group. She was sitting in the circle, but she was sleeping, or at least her eyes were closed. And I had started introducing the group and put on some music. And the physical therapist, who I love physical therapists. I don't do physical therapy. I'm not a physical therapist. I really value the work that they do. I think they have incredible prowess and a lot of patience. (laughs) But this poor girl, she was brand new. 
came in and, you know, is like, I'm looking for so-and-so. And the so-and-so happened to be the woman that was sleeping. And instead of sitting down next to her or kind of integrating into the group and gently introducing herself, she wakes her up and is like, Miss Smith, it's time to go take a walk. And Miss Smith was like, what? You know, kind of eyes half open, excuse me. And she was like, Miss Smith, you need to take a walk. And she opens her eyes and she goes, you take a walk. <laughs> and then just like just shuts down the conversation. And we all kind of look at each other. I'm looking at other staff members and we're like, oh, she just told her. Okay. And the physical therapist is like, I'll come back later. <laughs> so she leaves. Meanwhile, this woman, who I keep calling Miss Smith, at this point, you know, she's hearing what's going on in the group. The music is playing and there's some movement happening in the circle. And I notice how she's moving and I, you know, I kind of just gently approach, like I sit down at her side and I make eye contact with her and just kind of start tapping my toes just the way she's doing and invite in this relationship based off of what I'm seeing. And, you know, she was like the most active participant from then on in our group. And at the end of the group, got up, walked away, you know, went back to her room. It was just like, again, this eye opener of, if we just met them in their reality, you know, if we just met them in a compassionate place, tried to understand where they're coming from instead of pushing our own agendas, we might get our jobs done, but the atmosphere would look very different. And the quality of life of those people that we're actually trying to help would be much better. And you talk about how some people who have a hard time communicating or unable to communicate or have a hard time being understood, how people like that often have a lot that they actually want to say. And it's perhaps only through movement and dance that we can actually communicate. Yeah, you know, just because you can't say anything does not mean there's nothing to be said. And oftentimes, again, the body is speaking volumes. It is saying everything that the person wants to verbally say. It's up to us to meet them in that. It's up to us to maybe not know what they're trying to say. We might not know their language in their body, but we can at least create space for it. You know, we can start to clue into how their body is showing up. Is this normally how, you know, they move? Is their posture changed? Do they look like they're in pain? You know, like what is different versus like, how do they usually show up? Especially when individuals may not be able to tell us. You know, just like our children. I mean, gosh, even like we talked about dogs, right? Our pets, like oftentimes people, depending on their developmental capacity, like can't say that they're in pain. And I don't want to infer necessarily what pain looks like, but I can certainly tell when a body is constricted or tense versus when a body is relaxed. And if we're not aware, if we're not able to clue in on that because we're too overwhelmed, that's a problem for how we can create relationship, how we can be there for our loved ones, for our clients, for our patients. You know, there's so much information there. And again, why are we relying on 10% of our communication when most of it is embodied, when most of it is nonverbal? Talk about mirroring and how you engage that with your clients in different kinds of situations. So mirroring, I think, was first introduced to me as a dance therapy student. I use it a lot in my work just a way to build empathy and to be with my clients. You know, sometimes it happens, well, it happens regularly. You know, we have mirror neurons in our brain 
you know, it's again that our bodies are mirroring other bodies and, you know, that's primitive. It's kind of a survival thing as well, but it happens. And mirroring another body is not only a way for somebody to feel supported and validated. It's also a way for that body to be seen. It can be very vulnerable. So like, obviously you have to introduce that very gently, but that can be a way that someone is seen in a way they've never been seen before. You know, if their voice is always minimized or gaslit for me to just move the way they're moving, you know, as best as I can, because it's not about mocking. It's not about mimicking. It's really just trying to reflect what I'm seeing, just like a mirror would. It's oftentimes the first time somebody is seen for exactly who they are in that exact moment. And then I can reflect it. You know, I can say, would it be possible for me to do that again and for you to witness the movement and for them to watch what the movement looks like on another body, you know, for them to witness, like, is that how I was, you know, as again, as best as I can, because it's never going to be 100%. But for them to make meaning and metaphor around the movement that they're seeing is just such a special experience, really. Like I've had it done for me, you know, my therapist has done it. I've been in groups and, you know, continuing education workshops. It's just a really powerful experience. And considering that a lot of us avoid mirrors, like actual mirrors, to allow yourself to open up and to be seen by someone else and by yourself and to be supported in that is just powerful to say the least. So How I engage in it really depends on the circumstance and the client. You know, sometimes it's just us talking and recognizing that I'm going to try my best to mirror where they are in space. You know, so are we sitting on the same level? Like sometimes I have clients that want to sit on the floor. I'll sit on the floor with them. If they're, you know, casually sitting on the sofa and their feet are up, maybe, you know, I'm going to try to put my feet up too so that it really builds rapport, you know, and it does provide a different level of safety sometimes, but comfort and familiarity. And then other times it's more movement oriented and we might actually engage in a practice of mirroring. So I'll invite the client to move and I will move with them and then we'll stop. And then I will initiate the movement and they will move with me. And then we take turns until at some point we don't even know who's initiating the movement and we're just creating this natural communication, this natural dialogue through our bodies together until it just comes to a close. And again, it's a really lovely way to just highlight relationship, communication and communication style. You know, did I want to jump in on every word? Did I want to take over? Did I want to just follow and take your lead? You know, when you create this metaphor for movement, so much dialogue happens. There was a very moving example of that in the book where you were working with someone and I think you were having a hard time getting through to them or they just weren't responsive. And then you did some kind of mirroring of them and they just opened up like a flower in response to that. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's funny, as you're talking, I'm like, a couple things come to mind. So like, oh, which which in particular, but... I don't know if this is the example you're thinking of, but the one that came to mind actually is in the chapter about cognitive potential. And again, the whole book is not about dementia, but this is the example that came to mind was the group where I invited them to use their hands as paintbrushes and to kind of paint the canvas in front of them, which was just the air. And it wasn't just me mirroring this. 
the whole group ended up mirroring each other's movements. Everybody got the opportunity. I only talk about one person in particular, Eleanor, in the book. But, you know, we get to take on each other's movements and mirror them and try them on. And for some people, Eleanor in particular, she was able to share this beautiful memory of being with her loved one who had passed away years ago. And, you know, we all got to talk about like love and love's lost. And this is a woman that was like very confused, very agitated, and just always rummaging through her purse, looking for her ID, looking for information about where she lived. And for a good like 15 minutes, she just engaged in this story. And we were just there with her. I mean, we were just there. I mean, this happened years ago and I still can like conjure up that exact moment and just being really present to her posture and her movements and the emotions that were coming up. You know, we were all like in tears, I think, by the end of her story. And then just, you know, as quickly as it came on, it went away and she starts, you know, going through her purse again. So I don't know if that's the experience you were specifically speaking (laughs) of, but that's the one that came to my mind. And there are so many that I put in the book. It's kind of, (laughs) I'm realizing now it's like hard to think of the exact instance might have been one where there was a client that just like took a very strong stance stood in this giant x and i just mirrored that x for her and she just walked into the room she just took on a completely different persona in a really healthy way you know like stepped into her own you know there have been times where it's just through mirroring i'm modeling for someone else what it looks like to just soften to sometimes what appears to be quote fall apart you know, and that in the falling apart is actually where we gain strength and we end up being a lot stronger than we realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if that last one was the one I was thinking of, but I love the story with Eleanor. So there are times when mirroring is actually not appropriate, where someone may be just too vulnerable to that kind of an experience without some kind of preparation or some space of safety established within their own being. Yeah. Again, with all of these interventions, it's not prescriptive. It's it's funny. I have like prescriptions at the end of each chapter, but they're still inquiries. You know, there's still like wonderings, like try this when you're ready, or do you want to try this? Or what would this look like? And so I think just with everything, it's really important to know that it's the timing, it's the execution, it's the appropriateness, you know, because mirroring can be so vulnerable. It's certainly not the first thing I do with a lot of clients. It might be like maybe a third or fourth session, you know, depending on where that person is in their psyche, in their body, how much therapy they've already had, how eager they are to try something. My approach is very person-centered and I'm always taking the person's lead. You know, it's never me in the driver's seat. First and foremost, the person is why I'm there, you know, and we want to make sure that they're getting what they need or getting something from the experience. It's not me that's creating something, you know, pushing them into something that they're not ready for. So, you know, that's why we do assessments. It's why we take in account of, you know, goals and past history and just the invitation to try different things. But there's lots of different ways to engage in mirroring. And then as the therapist in the room, I'm constantly getting this feedback using my body as an indicator, you know, as a gauge, if you will, for when something like that might be appropriate to try. So I appreciate you bringing that up because I know that there will be people that say, oh, that's a really good intervention. I'm going to try that next time. And just understanding that, like, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. It can backfire. It's, again, the execution. It's how we enter into it that 
at least with regard to a therapeutic relationship is is really important. Yeah, and when we develop our own body awareness and our own sensitivity to what's going on inside our own bodies, could you talk about how that makes us sensitive to other bodies as well? Yeah, you know, similarly to what we were talking about with regard to resilience, you know, when I build a more robust movement vocabulary, I can take on more things, you know, or, or I can build my own resilience. And I think, you know, it translates even further that we are able to broaden, not just that others have experiences, but to allow their experiences to coexist. You know, that how I feel fear is going to be different than how someone else feels fear. And there may be some commonalities, but it doesn't invalidate their fear and it doesn't invalidate mine especially in this world that we're living in where there is a lot of social justice issues and sometimes we're seeing a lot of like this cancel culture or people call it kind of virtue signaling it negates one person's experience instead of bringing both experiences in and not making one right or wrong just noticing that there are different experiences so when we're more tuned into what we feel and we build a more robust vocabulary, we're able to also try on or even just notice what other people are experiencing. And that can build empathy, right? That can build understanding. If anything, it's just the ability to agree to disagree, right? Like, this is what you experience in your body, and this is what I experience. And they're two totally different things. And can we just Again, that idea of kind of like agree to disagree. And so there's something that this translates to. There's a field called ecosomatics. This isn't new. Indigenous practices have been studying and understanding how, you know, nature is intertwined with humankind and how we can learn from and how, how similar we are to it. You know, how we move just like the elements that are in the earth, around the earth. And again, it's just a new way of moving, a new way of relating to our environment so that it's not just something we engage in. It's actually very much a part of who we are. So, you know, my environment isn't there for me. It's there maybe as a support. Maybe it's there for experience, for witnessing, for sensation. You know, ideally there's some way to coexist. But I don't think it's a coincidence that as we've become more unaware and disembodied, our planet is suffering. It's coming at a price. Yeah, I love that part of the book. And I want to go more into that, but there was something else I want to get to before I forget. And that's relating to confusing our own feelings and our own body sense with that of others. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that that's something that comes with this body aware practice or just, you know, more awareness of the body is starting to recognize when something's mine and when it's not. You know, when we're so enmeshed in our environment or with the people in our environment, we feel things and we, I think we just assume that it's ours or we take responsibility for it when it's not ours because we're forced to or we're made to think that that's our role. And when we really relate to our bodies, we start to feel what we feel. <laughs> we start to give ourselves the opportunity to notice what we feel. Sometimes it's the first time that we're able to separate from like, wait a minute, I don't feel that at all in my body. That's someone else's, you know, or that voice in my head is not me. That's something that I acquired along the way. That's my mom, my dad, my grandmother, you know, whoever, my teacher. And when I really take the time to listen to my body, it has something else to say. The narrative is different. And I know it's been helpful for me, but it's been very, you know, helpful for clients along the way to realize like, whoa, 
that doesn't have to be my narrative. In fact, it isn't the story that I'm telling. It's something that I've attached to. You know, one way I put it very simply for me is I'm very prone to anxiety. (laughs) That is a feeling and emotion I'm very familiar with. And growing up, I was surrounded by people who were also very prone to anxiety. And I've realized that, yes, some of it was my own, but a lot of it was exacerbated because I was also taking on others' energy. I was taking on the anxiety around me and feeling like it was appropriate, you know, or, oh, that's just part of who I am, or, look, we're all anxious, we're family, (laughs) you know? And so now it's just noticing, like, Ooh, I'm starting to feel what it feels like in my body, some anxiety. Where's this coming from? Did I just engage in something that would conjure up some anxiety? Am I thinking of something that's bringing me anxiety? Or was I just in a situation with other people that may have felt anxious? And I need to just be present to that and set some boundaries, you know, emotionally and physically so that I can claim what's mine and what isn't. And you talk about avoidance and abundance. Could you talk about what you mean by avoidance and abundance in this context and how movement can shift our perspective? So I realized I was like, oh, wow, abundance and avoidance both have the word dance in them. How cool is that? And I sat with it for a little bit and I realized, wow, you know, most of us today avoid something. We're in avoidance of something. Gosh, we engage in our phones and quite easily end up avoiding the world around us because we're so tuned into the screens. And it just occurred to me that, well, dance is movement. And obviously this book is about movement that, wow, just by moving, you know, again, shifting our idea of this perspective physically, we can perhaps go from a place of avoidance to abundance. We can go from a place of not taking in, limiting our eyesight, limiting our perspectives, and just a simple shift creates this opportunity to open and bring in something, bring in more, become more, unleash my potential. And I think that's where that word abundance comes in for me. You know, it's instead of playing small and limiting my scope, I shift something in my body, which allows me to change perspective. I open up in some way and that brings in possibility that brings in potential. And those two words to me create abundance. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about how movement actually alters our perception of the world around us and our actual relationship with it? Yeah, this is a big topic, but the key point is perspective. So when we move, we are always creating a new perspective. So whether it's just me shifting in my seat or getting up and walking across the room, that is an opportunity for me to see things differently, for me to take in my environment and the things around me in a new way. And so that to me is like the foundation, like that's just the clear, plain and simple point that movement invites a new perspective because literally I'm changing and shifting the way I see things. So considering all that and your work with movement and dance, and body awareness, how different might our world look and feel if we all practiced a body aware approach to life? Well, sometimes I think this feels a little idyllic, (laughs) a little like, oh, world peace. But I really feel like there'd be more empathy and compassion. Like those are the two words that come up to me the most, because just in my 15-ish years of studying and practicing this work, I've built more empathy and compassion for myself 
for my clients, for my family members, for my environment, for my neighbors. And so I just think, wow, like if that happens for one person, and I know it's happened for my colleagues and my peers and fellow therapists and clients, like, wow, what would that be like if it just kept trickling and trickling and trickling? You know, we'd have this movement, right? This revolution of compassionate and empathic individuals, which isn't completely void. I mean, like we do have, there are obviously a lot of empathic healers and people and there's so much compassion and there is good in the world. But with the way the world is, there is so much negativity and the negativity is so strong that we need all the tools and the help that we can get to bring in the positivity, right? To build in, to bring in the kindness and the goodness. So Honestly, I think engaging and being in our bodies and creating these new perspectives for ourselves, being more empathic and compassionate to what we need and what we feel is just the beginning. You know, it just blossoms from there. And, you know, it just ends up sharing space with someone and saying, it's okay for you to be here and it's okay for me to be here and that we can both be here together. Another thing that I would love for you to talk about is playing with polarities and noticing our body's movements, you know, the way it tends to move in uncomfortable situations. Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned that, you know, when we're feeling pain or discomfort, at the very least, our bodies constrict. You know, it's a quite neurotypical response for us to close in when we're feeling insecure, unsafe, a lack of you know, assuredness. And oftentimes by inviting in polarities, which is really where a lot of my clients start, you know, it's this dichotomous thinking. It's like, it's yes or no. So it's like, okay, well, let's embody yes. Let's embody no. And let's figure out the spectrum. Like where does yes and no meet? And I've actually had clients like pick a point in the room that's yes and pick a point in the room that's no. And we're going to draw an invisible line between them. And I want you to embody the spectrum and notice where the middle is. What is the middle point? What does the middle point look like between yes and I mean, it's just one example, but like, what does the middle point look like between black and white? Yes and no, right or wrong. And that it's often by acknowledging and experiencing these polarities that we allow ourselves to start engaging in the spectrum, in the gray area, which is really what life is all about. Like, it's not meant to be right or wrong, yes or no. And we get stuck in that so often. I mean, I do too. You know, I either get stuck in someone else's polarity or I find myself stuck in my own. But through movement, I've found, you know, it's so beneficial to bring in the gray. I mean, you're literally moving the spectrum. But that sometimes to get there, we have to embody opposites. Yeah, I remember many years ago, we used to do something we called dichotomies theater, where mm-hmm. we, would, we would act out opposites and then switch roles just to experience what it felt like to play out different extremes, different polarities. Yeah, again, it seems rather simple, but it has huge implications. It really does. So I, you know, I can spend an entire session with a client just experiencing like, yes and no and the relationship between the two and you know the movement that occurs between them or just the movement on opposite ends of the spectrum it's i don't know i find myself like smiling and just kind of being in awe of like how simple some of these interventions are you know when we just take it for what it is you know just simply looking at the way we move with regards to certain contexts and constructs in the mind mm-hmm. yeah again expanding our vocabulary yeah yeah 
So there's a quote from the book. I'm not sure if this is from you or you quoting somebody. When you feel intensely, know that you're healing immensely. And when we feel deeply, the body is where we will find the support and an outlet for difficult emotions. So the first part of that quote is actually from Dr. Caroline Leaf, but the second half of that quote was my interpretation of it, if you will. And I think for me, it's just a reminder that, you know, the body can be what holds or is what holds these emotions. And so it can feel very intimidating. But when we use the body in ways that we've been talking about, it's also a way through it. It's also a way figuring it out and maneuvering around it and moving through the challenges that life brings. So movement quite literally becomes an outlet that allows me to express what I'm feeling and to, you know, make meaning or just support myself as I'm going through it. You know, I don't have to make meaning of it right away. I don't even have to understand it. I just get to experience it. I just get to say, this is what's happening. This is what I'm feeling in this moment. And when I tap into that and I support that, it's another way to express myself. It's another way to externalize what I'm holding on to. And again, it's just as simple as like starting to recognize what movement is possible, what movement is already happening, and what movement isn't happening, and inviting that into my day. And because it's so easy for us to get overwhelmed by our emotions and feelings, it can be so reassuring to consider that when we are feeling things so intensely, that we're actually in the process of healing immensely. Yes. And then, you know, when we start to heal, I think there's this assumption that we're going to feel better. You know, we're going to feel like a weight is lifted and I'm working better. I'm feeling better. I'm speaking better. I'm moving better. And I've had so many clients, it's not the opposite necessarily that happens, but all of a sudden they're just feeling so much, so much. And it feels a little intimidating and overwhelming and they feel like they're doing it wrong. And, you know, it's not about right or wrong, but that's when I assure them, you know, you are going to feel a lot more because you're opening up your body to feeling more. Like you're feeling things you haven't allowed yourself to feel in a really long time. And ultimately, doing that will release so much, but it may feel intimidating and very overwhelming because you're like, I didn't feel any emotions. And now I'm feeling every emotion under the sun and this sucks. <laughs> you know? It's like, welcome to therapy. <laughs> you know? I'm like, you've arrived. Enjoy it. You know, it's like, I get it because I've been there myself. And yet at some point there's this huge catharsis. There's just this this release and this invitation to continue to feel and to know that as I feel, I can support myself. I will be okay feeling what I feel. Mm -hmm. And most of us don't really feel into or pay attention to our bodies as we move through the world. And at the end of the book, you revisit that question from the beginning, how are you moving? So let's end by talking a bit more about that question, what it is, and the invitation it offers us as we move ahead with our lives. I think it's exactly the question we need to start doing this work of integrating mind and body and being more aware of how our body perpetuates or supports our mental health. You know, so just reminding ourselves that it's not how or what movement I engage in in particular. It's not the yoga class that I took. It's not the exercise 30 minutes a day. It's 
how I'm currently existing in my body, what movement is happening, again, or not happening, how am I breathing, am I blinking, am I stuck in one posture, is my foot asleep, like, just how am I existing in this moment in my body, and when I ask myself, how am I moving, ultimately, it leads to how am I thinking, that in some way, how I'm moving in this moment is contributing to how I am thinking, feeling, or behaving. And if it's something I'm looking to change, oftentimes mindset feels really difficult to recognize. It benefits me to start in my body and start to change the way that I'm moving. And I can't do that until I recognize how it's already happening. So setting a reminder on your phone, writing in your calendar, you know, putting it on post-it notes around your house, like just start to remind yourself to ask this question of, how am I currently moving? Because that will be the first place to start when you want to make a change and you want to make it permanent. Erica, it's been wonderful talking with you. You too. This was such a lovely conversation. Like we could talk all day. (laughs) I know. I know. I have to skip over so many of the questions I had for you because time just flew by. I know, right? Yeah. Um, I so appreciate your time and your ease of questioning. It was just a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you've been terrific. So my guest has been Erica Hornthal. She's a licensed clinical counselor, board certified dance movement therapist, and the CEO and founder of Chicago Dance Therapy. And she's the author of this new wonderful book we've been talking about, Body Aware. Rediscover your mind-body connection. Stop feeling stuck and improve your mental health with simple movement practices. Erica, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.